Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Futurati Podcast. Any member of the Futurati is somebody who believes in the power of the future. We know there's a better world ahead, and we indeed have the power to make it so. In our podcast, we talk to the best minds in the world about the most urgent problems facing mankind today, and we hope you learn as much from them as we do. I'm Thomas Fry, a professional futurist and keynote speaker. And I'm Trent Fowler, a machine learning engineer and author. Thank you for joining us. Good evening, everyone, and thank you for listening to the Futurati podcast. Tonight, we're joined by Velina Chakarova. Velina is the director at the Austrian Institute for European and Security Policy in Vienna, Austria. Her work includes research, consulting, and lectures on global system transformation and geostrategy of global actors, particularly the EU's role in Eastern Europe. If you enjoy this interview, please don't forget to like the episode and subscribe on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. Valina, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you very much for the invitation. Let's hear a little bit about your background, your interests, and what brought you to working on the projects you're working on today. Okay, so my name um, probably reveals already my background, which is that I am originally from Bulgaria. Uh, this is Eastern, Southeastern Europe. Um, uh, and uh, I've been living um, in Austria, which is Central Europe, for the last 15 years now. Uh, so my uh, specialty, my fields of expertise are uh, mostly in the field of um, global system processes and structures, global order, uh, shifts of change, uh, mostly systemic shifts of change, uh, but also, I'm uh, very much interested in um, global and regional actors' uh, constellations. And uh, this is um, this kind of processes, developments, uh, trends, um, but also uh, scenarios are um, basically at the core of my research, my work. And I'm applying a systems thinking, systems approach, and also geopolitical, geoeconomic, and realpolitik approach. Fantastic. Um, I want to get into all that. We're futurists here, and we've had forecasters and scenario planners on to, to talk about their methodologies. But I thought we would start at kind of a, a place that might seem a little silly. And I was wondering if you could just define geopolitics. I mean, in a sense, it's in the name, right? But I, I often find that when you dig in a little bit, the way that people who work in fields conceptualize their own work uh, is is richer than than you might think just based on the name of the field. So, so how do you conceive of the field that you work in? Okay, uh, so in order to arrive at my uh, term of uh, geopolitics and uh, geoeconomics, I would like to start with uh, my 
term for realpolitik because I'm basically placed in a kind of a corner of uh, political science and international relations. And um, uh, I would like to draw your attention to um, uh, basically to a German uh, to a German uh, journalist and politician uh, from uh, the 19th century who actually articulated a new way of uh, understanding politics and the distribution of power at that time, of course, in Europe, but it is meanwhile applicable also to uh, world affairs. And uh, he basically um, defined um, this term of realpolitik as a kind of a uh, more or less um, the true motor uh, behind uh, national interests and calculations and uh, goals, which is uh, more or less aimed at uh, the struggle for mastery in uh, in the relations between uh, between the main actors. Now, two uh, hundreds uh, year uh, years fast forward. Um, uh, I would paraphrase uh, this uh, kind of uh, definition by claiming that realpolitik, uh, at least the way I see it, uh, also from my experience, uh, uh, you know, in analyzing and as assessing uh, global affairs for the last 20 years, is that basically realpolitik is the true motor of global affairs. Uh, serving at best as a kind of a pious smokescreen for the struggle of mastery and power in an extremely interconnected world. So derived from this realpolitik definition, uh, I look at geopolitics and geoeconomics as these two interconnected main pillars of realpolitik. So basically uh, main pillars of the struggle for power. Uh, mostly of state actors, but we are also observing increasingly the role of transnational actors, corporations, organizations, and so on. So that, so, that was Bismarck, right? Uh, that is not only Bismarck, of course. These are this is a summary of uh, many of many centuries <laughs> of uh, political thinking and political philosophy, and I had kind of. Uh, summarized it uh, in a, a very, very short way. But uh, uh, basically, uh, the geoeconomics uh, is um, where the states seek to impose control over the logic of trade, refining uh, use of economic tools and instruments, mostly based on their macroeconomic uh, portfolio, uh, to attain these geopolitical objectives, which is basically state politics uh, derived from geographic uh, factors and variables so I, uh, make it very very short for you <laughs> right right um so, so a lot of that boiled down to the the control for the, the desire for power and I, I wonder if you might comment on that just as a concept and how it's changed over time because it seems like this struggle has always been with us for as long as there have been humans and as long as there have been competing human societies on a, on a finite world uh but I'm sure it's changed rather a lot in the the internet era, um, where, where weapons might just as much be, you know, bots on Facebook or Twitter influencing elections or something like that, as as, as missiles or or tanks or something else. So, how how has power evolved over time? Well, at the level of international relations, mm -hmm. 
and uh, of course that means mostly state relations geopolitics is exactly this kind of helpful method of um, studying um, foreign security defense policy in order to understand but also explain uh, international political behavior uh, like i said based on these geographical uh, variables um, and geopolitics has always uh, focused on political uh, power uh, linked to the geographic space. So over the last uh, few centuries, um, of course, a lot has changed. I would not go into 5,000 years or uh, right. 2,000 years of uh, history of humankind, because during that time, we also had a lot of examples uh, of, uh, you know, empires, great powers behavior, which was not really much different. But I would like to uh, focus mostly on, uh, let's say, on the uh, on modern uh, history of humankind, where we experienced this kind of specific behavior by, uh, let's say, a global power. And if we look back at uh, the 20th century, uh, we had the example and the really excellent research of, uh, let's say, for instance, the British geographer uh, Halford Mackinder, right. who launched the Heartland Theory. Right. And he actually analyzed struggle for power uh, between, specifically between sea-based um, and land-based powers. So this was a kind of a new approach um, from the perspective of history and the perspective of geography using this kind of uh, indicators. And I would claim that he was uh, pretty much right about uh, uh, not just about the behavior of uh, states. Uh, during that time, he was analyzing, of course, uh, mostly the place of uh, Great Britain in the world. Uh, this one uh, really, um, so to say, great power, a power that had developed um, kind of Capabilities to um, uh, capabilities for global power projection, which later on, as another example, was basically transferred to the United States. Right. Uh, so, uh, ge geography was a main factor, but he also acknowledged the role of technology, and this is another component that I would like to stress uh, very shortly because um, it was the first and the second wave of the industrial revolutions that also made Great Britain um, a kind of a global power, uh, which also established um, true connectivity and infrastructure uh, and sea, uh, uh, sea lines, uh, so basically maritime transport routes, uh, all of this uh, uh, or this kind of web of, uh, of uh, connections uh, to the rest of the world. Um, but also, it was the first and the second wave of the Industrial Revolution, uh, which for Great Britain was this kind of additional important factor uh, to, to make it that great. And later on, in the 70s, when we had another uh, situation between two competitors, two superpowers, competing over the control, once again, struggle for, for power, and who is going to be at the top. Um, it was the third industrial revolution, once again, a role of technology where United States managed to ride the wave and to win the competition. 
against the Soviet Union, and which was also the uh, basically the outcome which made United States that kind of really superpower, uni unique um, uh, kind of a superpower that could then establish uh, all of these um, intertwined networks uh, following the collapse of the Soviet Union uh, at the beginning of the 90s, uh, and which resulted in something absolutely phenomenal in my view. Um, and we are still in the middle of this phenomenon. And that is uh, this kind of what I call global system of intertwined socioeconomic uh, networks, which were more or less, uh, you know, a result, an outcome of a globalization led, shaped, uh, and shaped by the United States following the end of uh, the Cold War. And basically, um, uh, you know, the Cold War was won by one of the two superpowers, and the other one could impose its own view of, uh, you know, of the global order, uh, its rules of the game, its networks, and the and unanticipated outcome of this was this kind of globalized globalized world affairs which also is the very first time in the history of uh, of this modern history of humankind where we have also a global capitalist system mm -hmm. because most of the states are right now um having a capitalist uh, open market economy Okay, so I would end here, uh, and maybe I can also elaborate a little bit more on this, on all of these concepts. Yeah, please. I, I want to come back to Halford Mackinder because I have some questions about the Heartland theory and and how it might apply today. But uh, I wanted to follow up on a, a comment you made about the role that America has played in shaping the world order in the, in the aftermath of the collapse of the Soviet Union. So. Uh, the, the way you laid it out, it made it sound like the United States triumph in that conflict is sort of responsible for the way that the world is interconnected today. But I, I mean, I would argue that trade routes and sort of globalization goes back at least to the Columbian Exchange in the 16th century. So uh, in, in what ways is America responsible for how interconnected the world is today? Like, like what has been her role in shaping the global order? Of course, like I said, uh, this is not the first time, uh, and it's not a unique, uh, you know, unique uh, historical episode. But um, I suggested at the beginning that we more or less focus now on the um, the latest examples of uh, a kind of um, global powers, and I took the example with uh, Great Britain, uh, based on. Um, uh, the geopolitics approach, and then move to the United States as the second uh, global power, which is still, by the way, the only, actually the only superpower with uh, global power projections, and the only power in the world that is capable uh, not only to project its power in every corner of the world, but also to uh, influence, to control, to deploy, um, at any point, at any terrestrial maritime spot on the map, um, troops or presence or uh, actually the to 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 uh, uh, 
uh, answer your question, um, the free flow of uh, goods, of capital, of services, of data, and so on that is been enabled by the entanglement of these networks that I named is actually possible because there is one, one uh, actually one power in charge that one hegemonic power, one hegemonic power in charge that actually provides for this security, guarantees the free flow, um, and actually. Uh, this is the way it, it, it goes. This is actually the main indicator that uh, makes, it, makes it different from all the other competitors or regional uh, powers with uh, you know, global power aspirations and so on and so forth. So we are still in a situation, even now in 2021, where there is actually only one power with this kind of uh, global power projection. And the power that actually also has the global reserve currency, which is also guaranteed by, uh, by uh, you know, the uh, capabilities to deploy and to secure uh, wherever it's necessary or whatever national interests are at stake. So this is basically, once again, the uh, to, to see that is a concept of uh, the strong do what they uh, must. Uh, so basically the strong do what they want and the weak uh, um, suffer what they must. So that means that whenever national interests are at stake, um, uh, global power contrary to all other uh, you know, powers with limited resources or limited uh, power projection capabilities um, can do whatever it likes. But you mentioned something very, I mean, everything it likes, it finds and it finds considers necessary. But you also mentioned something interesting, which is also, I think, uh, important uh, aspect. And that is there uh, that uh, whenever we have a situation of a, a global power, there is a, definitely a hegemon um, there is also a situation of, uh, you know, competitors trying to uh, trying to compete for uh, for you know for control and to secure their interests in a kind of a situation where wherever the vacuum allows it, wherever there is a void and it can be filled, there will be such competitors that will try to also maximize their gains by forming, for instance, uh, alliances and partnerships or by building enough uh, capabilities to project uh, power beyond uh, the national realm. And this is exactly the situation where we are right now once again, so nothing new um, uh, in a situation where uh, you can imagine how the pendulum is swinging back and forth. And right now we are once again in this kind of a fragile equilibrium where uh, the hegemon is uh, getting weakened, mm -hmm. but still at, is staying at the level of, of a global power uh, projection. And then there is a second center of power, which is currently being built by China, 
together, of course, with partnerships and with alliances and with minor partners. And this is basically now the systemic competitor of United States. And this kind of systemic competition is taking simultaneously taking place in all fields, in all key domains. It's not just a trade dispute as it is often being presented in uh, mass media, or it's not just taking place at the level of uh, diplomacy, for instance, or political relations, but is simultaneously taking place in all key domains and, and fields. So, of course, the open question mark is uh, as to whether China will manage to create this kind of second uh, secondary system of power, how big it will be, and will it be this kind of a unique to go back to the uh, to the concepts of uh, geopolitics, will it be this kind of unique Asian power mm -hmm. that will simultaneously build not just a rim, so basically it's not going to turn into a rim uh, power as the United States was, but it's going to also become uh, a kind of a land power in the large Eurasian uh, landmass, which of course is another term from the geopolitics. It's, um, it's a term by introduced by uh, Spikeman, Nicholas Spikeman, who basically added it to uh, the heartland theory of, uh, of Mackinder. And um, many um, authors and experts, uh, for instance, argue that um, China is basically trying to compete with uh, the United States in the in the Rimland, um, and we are already observing these kind of tensions that are taking place in, uh, uh, in for instance, South China Sea in the Indian Ocean. Uh, but I argue that uh, China is preparing. Uh, for both. So next to this, uh, we are going to observe also increasing, increasingly tensions uh, along the line of actual control with India. So there will be also um, this grasp for um, uh, quest for power uh, in, uh, in, the, in the heartland. And uh, this is going to happen uh, and it's going to be possible only in a systemic coordination with uh, Russia, which uh, still considers uh, Eurasia as a kind of a near abroad. And uh, this is where this kind of dragon bear concept uh, kicks in, which I have developed for the last seven, eight years, where most of the authors uh, and experts argue that uh, both China and Russia will be competitors in Eurasia. And I actually argue that they will somehow come up with, um, with this systemic uh, coordination in various fields and domains and will actually cooperate to prevent third actors such as United States and partners from interfering and filling the Eurasian void. Right. So 
you cover Dragon Bear. We're going to get back to that. That's one of the things that's distinctive about your work. I uh, I was curious, though, as, as we're moving into a, a world that is characterized by multipolar power centers, if you think that a stable and peaceful world order requires a single hegemon in charge of everything, or is it, or is it possible, you know, game theoretically or, or uh, geopolitically, for the dragon bear in the East and the United States to sort of share power in a way that doesn't lead to war or escalating tensions? Uh, or, or is that just not an equilibrium that will hold? Well, everything is possible, of course. And there is indeed a scenario, a future scenario where, for instance, uh, um, let's say uh, the two systems of power, um, United States and uh, China, have already decoupled and uh, given that they have basically created their own networks of, you know, socioeconomic systems, they have separated internet space, they have separated uh, satellites, they have, uh, you know, their trade um, and, uh, you know, economic uh, uh, economic space, they decided uh, direct confrontation is really, would really result in a, uh, in a mass destruction. So both agree on a kind of a peaceful coexistence, a peaceful coexistence of two separated systems, of two more or less alternative universes. And the one is still being shaped by the United States together with partners such as the transatlantic community, but also the Asian partners, such as, for instance, the quadrilateral countries, which are increase, increasingly engaging. What, what are uh, those in, quadrilateral countries? What are those? These are, the, these are India, Australia, and Japan, okay. together with the United States. And they are trying to facilitate uh, not institutionalized cooperation, but facilitate cooperation in key uh, fields such as defense, um, free navigation in the Indo-Pacific uh, region, um, for instance, uh, um, reshoring of uh, supply chains um, or reconfiguring supply chains from China, but also uh, they are engaged in military drills and, uh, and so on and so forth. So they have various meanwhile various uh, high ranking political meetings and um, and agreements and this would be one one uh, system uh, more or less um, shaped by the same rules of the game uh, the rules uh, the rules based so-called rules based uh, order but then again there will be another one in a kind of future because you ask me this is uh, a possibility, a kind of positive, positive uh, future scenario. But I think that uh, the way the global affairs are currently developing, I think we will um, likely end up with something more volatile, where there will be um, not necessarily a direct confrontation with. Uh, uh, kinetic means, but we are going to witness a painful decoupling uh, on both sides. So it's a chimeric to uh, to to anticipate a decoupling only on the side of the United States, 
because Beijing is exactly interested is 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 at the same time also interested in uh, decoupling from uh, from from United States uh, for obvious reasons because they also fear certain dependencies they want to be more independent in their international and regional behavior and they have of course also their own agenda so um of course the timing was probably too early from a chinese perspective and they were hoping for a more stable period of uh, relations until they prepare properly but uh, due to the <laughs> unexpected uh more or less unexpected um elections previous previous election and uh, uh the trump's administration thinks um well turned quite uh quickly into another direction and in this future scenario that i anticipate we would probably see a more volatile decoupling there will be a kind of uh direct confrontation without kinetic means but with the application of a full spectrum of other means so you take um, all these economic um, and uh, you know trade instruments to uh, to you know use pressure or um, exert uh, influence over the behavior of another state a sort or, of second cold war maybe yes a second cold war a cold war two as i call it and exactly oh, but you use also other means such as disinformation hybrid uh, threats then you use also alliances and um partnerships so you try also to win uh, hearts and minds and if not to pressure third countries to uh, more or less comply with with uh, you know with uh, certain behavior um i don't see for instance in that kind of scenario a lot of space for neutral or non-aligned countries so if uh if you would ask me for instance uh, whether india would be once again um the front runner of a non-aligned uh, movement as it was the case during the Cold War, I would say no, because I think that India specifically is being projected to become a third world, uh, uh, a third economic power in the world in the next decade or two, uh, will not have the luxury of, of uh, staying neutral. And specifically because of uh, its own problems with China and its own competition with China, so the the two Asian giants will be involved in a lot of uh, um, own dynamics of competition and uh, uh, controversial relations. I think that uh, all regional actors. Um, will be faced with a choice at some point they will be oscillating in the meantime between the two major uh, systemic rivals trying to avoid taking sides trying to maximize their gains which i called also as a trend i called uh, or as a phenomenon uh, a bilateralization of uh, international relations every country for itself 
or make every country great again, <laughs> so to say. Okay. <laughs> um, so in, in your projections of the future, you see China and Russia working out a kind of alliance between themselves, which will make them a more formidable uh, secondary pole of, of power. So how do you, well, first of all, I, I guess I want to step back and ask you what the evidence is for that. So, so you said that you know, other experts who've looked at this think that the rivalry between those two countries will continue and that you don't agree. So could, could we first establish the chain of evidence that leads you to think that? And then maybe we can talk a little bit about how that might play out in the dynamics of the second cold war. You mean evidence uh, that point to uh, the dragon bear or evidence point to the multipolarity thesis? The... Because I don't agree with both. I, I, uh, most, the majority of experts were actually, was actually claiming that there will be never, that there will be never a systemic uh, alignment or systemic coordination between China and Russia for right, at right. least the last uh, eight to 10 years. And the second main thesis of the international expert community uh, was that we are going to face multipolarity, which I also have been uh, always found very controversial. So I can explain both. <laughs> well, let's start with the, the dragon bear. So why is it that you disagree in, in asserting that China and Russia will work out an alliance between themselves. What, what's the evidence for that claim? Okay, so um, first and foremost, uh, my it's not so much about evidence, but it's about trends developments. And uh, I think that uh, trends very often reveal much more about certain patterns of behavior as compared to um, um kind of um you know some of many facts or some of many many uh singular events and this is the way how i approach the issue between uh china and russia um in 2014 so i've been of course following russia very very closely for the last 20 years uh, so it was nothing new to me when I started following this specific relationship in 2013. I asked the question, are we going to witness a situation of an axis of convenience between these two uh, powers? Or is it a kind of a new mode of shaping the global system? And this is where I start. This was the starting point for me to identify various fields. So I took, of course, the field of uh, security, uh, the, the field of defense. Then, of course, I moved to technology, finance, trade, um, agriculture, monetary issues, that means currencies, um, finance, and more or less, I have, uh, uh, I have been following a spectrum of uh, of, uh, of key domains where I was looking for weak signals, but also for, you know, like I said, for uh, any shifts in the in the trends. Uh, in so, the trends. so you're monitoring and all of those areas for trends. I've been I'm still monitoring time. all of them. Yes, okay. all of the time. So this is the way I established. Uh, I established a kind of 
um, bigger picture based on these daily observations. And um, uh, maybe another advantage was and still is the fact that I'm also using the language, so I could also uh, I could also uh, look into um, into the national narratives coming from both. So on the one side, of course, the Russian narrative, but then, of course, in cooperation with other colleagues, increasingly the Chinese narrative. And more or less, uh, this relationship uh, evolved under the radar because uh, the expectations were pretty obvious that it's not going to work out because they have many issues. Um, uh, Russia, of course, would never, would never um, tolerate a Pax Sinica in its direct vicinity. Um, for instance, in Central Asia, uh, in the large Eurasian uh, space, and that makes, of course, perfect sense. If we look back at the uh, uh, concepts of uh, geopolitics and Russia as uh, this heartland uh, uh, country operating still in a very, very um, conservative um, uh, state power uh, calculations uh, to remind uh, just one uh, quote uh, about uh, Eastern Europe, who controls Eastern Europe, <laughs> controls the heartland, and right. then controls the world. The world island. So, Yes, the world island. Uh, so this is still very much, uh, very much existent uh, in uh, the, the the Russian rationale, and uh, Russia has always to do its geopolitical homework. So they have to always be a few steps ahead of the rest as a matter of uh, state survival, more or less. So uh, this is the way I approach the issue, and. Uh, um, my observations resulted, and like I said, this is uh, still an open chapter, and we can, of course, witness uh, major shifts. But for now, specifically, the um, the way this develop this the relationship started developing was uh, um, was uh, more or less marked by the events in 2013-2014 when Russia intervened in uh, eastern Ukraine, annexed Crimea, was isolated by the West, by the United States, by European powers, and also by other transatlantic uh, partners. And this resulted in a situation where Russia needed a strong friend. And it needed it very, very quickly because it was facing a uh, huge currency crisis uh, during the time it was under, put under a lot of economic uh, and trade pressure. Um, it had still its energy interdependence with uh, European powers and needed, needed it to also diversify it. And uh, this was the time when China basically stepped in and said, okay, let's do it. <laughs> And uh, they helped them come out of the currency crisis. They initiated a lot of uh, high-ranking political meetings. Uh, more or less, uh, it is uh, uh, not a generic development. It right. is a development that was really top-down. Uh, was taking place top-down, was shaped <laughs> 
top down and um, and is still in the making. So is it an interim access of convenient destined to fail um, from current from the from the current perspective? I would say no. Uh, and the very fact, just to give you one very fresh example from the last uh, weeks, uh, the very fact that um, um, now in Afghanistan, the Taliban are taking control over the country and where did they pay visit to? Uh, they went to Moscow and then immediately after that, they went to uh, to China and met with, uh, you know, with um, higher ranking political uh, decision makers in these countries, which actually reveal uh, the true preparation for a power transfer in the country, following the withdrawal of the U.S. troops, uh, is once again just one very, very small example how uh, the coordination between these two countries is being perceived by third countries, by third, uh, by third, um, you know state actors. So that's, that's one of the pieces um, of evidence is that when this this new power assumes uh, is, is able to fill the vacuum left by the United States, they go to Russia and then they go to China. And, and so you're saying so so that's evidence that at least third parties are beginning to perceive these two as a power block because they, they feel they need to go and talk to both of them. And they wouldn't do that if th there wasn't some kind of uh, alliance forming between and the this two. is just one indicator because take also the take also for instance the uh, latest tensions between china and india from last year uh when uh, russia um actually was more or less neutral to the conflict uh, they have traditionally good uh, very good relationship with uh, india but now increasingly good relation and important relationship with china so they remained neutral during uh, this, uh, uh, this this episode of uh, serious tensions. There were casualties on both sides, and uh, the skirmishes were really threatening to uh, result in a direct military clash. And still, um, it was uh, it was Russia that uh, um, successfully mediated, and uh, they have, for instance, a um, format which is uh, called RIC, uh, Russia, India, China, a format between the foreign ministers of the three countries. They basically came together uh, and uh, discussed, um, you know, tried to, um, uh, to mitigate. And um, I think that uh, it will be increasingly difficult for Russia to also navigate between old friends right. uh, and new friends. So these are extremely fluid uh, geopolitical formations. Uh, but uh, specifically, the dragon bear is one that should be very carefully observed. And um, I think that the West has overslept it, more or less. So right now, they are facing a reality that is already, already there. Uh, not just in the making. Uh, in the meantime, they solved uh, their territorial issues. The uh, common border has been demarcated. Um, they have uh, huge energy deals. Uh, they have not just uh, shaped international organizations that were U.S. 
products, more or less. So a kind of institutional leverage um, from the Cold War following the collapse of the Soviet Union, which stayed in place. So take every meaningful socioeconomic system and you will find at least one important international organization in place. And these were, uh, so to say, organizations that were initiated, shaped, influenced, um, supported by the United States and partners. So meanwhile, these institutions are um, also affected by the be behavior of uh, the dragon bear. Take the example of the United Nations. Uh, take the example of the Security Council of the United Nations. Um, that means that even there, they manage to coordinate actions. They manage to introduce certain uh, certain steps in order to um, uh, to uh, produce the desired effect. Uh, one example was with Syria. There, Russia was the active uh, country. Uh, China was abstaining or was following, so to say, suit. Um, Iran is another example. Um, there will be more such examples. But on the other side, when we talk about international organizations, there is meanwhile a whole universe of alternative organizations. And uh, if you look carefully um, at these uh, organizations, we will find uh, as a main protagonist uh, China, but very often Russia is also playing a role. So for instance, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization is an organization that has been uh, that has a mirror organization uh, led by Russia. It's an organization for collective security. And some speculate that the, China, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization will basically become a kind of alternative to Asian NATO led by China and uh, Russia at some point. Then there is still this format of the BRICS together with Russia and with Brazil and India. And this year, BRICS Forum is taking place in India, by the way. And South uh, Africa is also there. Then we have the Asian Investment Infrastructure Bank, which is more or less absolutely mirror organization of the Asian Development Bank, which is led by the United States. And in any of these uh, specific, uh, specific uh, networks. Uh, so take the World Bank, take the uh, International Monetary Fund. Um, you have uh, an growing influence uh, uh, by China, but you have also a kind of coordination. Um, then, of course, uh, the huge topic of uh, infrastructure, connectivity. And you named also at the beginning uh, the um, role of a hegemon to stabilize, but also to establish um, its, um, its, its control over uh, transport routes and trade routes mm -hmm. and uh, connectivities. And this is basically now also happening um, on the side of China, where China is introducing its own uh, grandiose, uh, so to say, grandiose. It's not one project. It's a sum of multiple projects um, at sea or 
uh, on land um, uh, summarized uh, under the uh, the buzzword uh, Belt and Road uh, Initiative, but um, these are indeed um, long-term oriented, geostrategic, yeah. um, actually geostrategically oriented infrastructure projects that aim to connect China with the rest of the world. So it doesn't have to take uh, to to happen in five years from now. It can happen also in 10, 15, 20 years and so on. But the idea is to build simultaneously terrestrial and maritime connectivity, which is alternative to the US-led ones. Because as we know, still 80 to 90% of uh, the uh, global trade takes place via maritime routes. And these are the maritime routes that uh, are secured by the United States. If we look at the map, we see how Europe is being connected through the Mediterranean uh, via the canals and the choke points, uh, such as the Suez Canal, uh, the uh, the uh, the through the through through uh, through Africa uh, and then through the Indian Ocean to the Pacific realm, and all of these important uh, uh, choke points and maritime routes are more or less controlled by the United States. But then again, if you look also once again in the map, we are going to realize that uh, China is eager to build its own. Uh, alternative uh, corridors. One is currently going through Pakistan, meanwhile, with the port uh, in Gwadar um, at the Indian Ocean, basically allowing China to get an access to the Indian Ocean region and uh, project uh, limited uh, power in a domain which has been reserved to India. Uh, on the other side uh, from uh, of India, if we go, if we look at uh, Myanmar, uh, there is another corridor, which is also uh, allowing China to, uh, to for instance, to increase uh, energy supplies, because it is still very much dependent on the same, like I said, same maritime routes. Uh, that I mentioned before. Uh, so this would uh, give another opportunity, another possibility to diversify the corridors. And then there are these uh, three, four terrestrial corridors uh, going, by the way, uh, through which province? Through Xinjiang. So if we hear so much about human rights and uh, human rights violations uh, and genocide, by, by by Western media when it comes to Xinjiang, I uh, would like to draw your attention also to another aspect, and that is that uh, China needs to stabilize and securitize Xinjiang because this is a cross point for several terrestrial corridors connecting China to Central Asia, to Russia, and uh, meanwhile to Iran, and even there is one deviation uh, to, to Turkey and then via Turkey to Black Sea and Europe. So it's once again, it's very hardcore geopolitics behind it. Yeah. Um, so what, 
you, you make a compelling case for China in collusion with Russia, establishing almost a like a separate world, like a, their own sets of institutions, their own corridors, their mm-hmm. own access to the sea and 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 uh, trade routes that they can control. What what would be the United States play here? I mean, we, we're declining in power. Um, we we are, find ourselves in this sort of multipolar world. What would be the United States, uh, you know, best shot for? maybe not maintaining power as a hegemon, but as, as main, maintaining its position as one of the key players? Well, key, uh, first and foremost, uh, things do not look that bad for the United States and partners, but uh, it depends on the way how uh, they will approach uh, uh, these trends and what kind of decisions they will make for the future. What kind of future do they anticipate? Because in the end, it's uh, it's all about uh, uh, the decisions that will be made now, but will impact us in 10, 10, 20 or 30 years from now. And one of the ways I see it actually as a positive outcome for the United States is to um, engage seriously um, third countries, so regional regional uh, alliances, to forge regional alliances, to, to um, create meaningful partnerships based on this messianic, but also, uh, you know, not just hard power, but also soft power. The combination of both will be, I think, decisive because um, it has to be perfectly clear to everyone that um, if uh, China wins uh, this systemic competition, if China wins the um, competition um, during the fourth industrial revolution, so the country that will win the competition over technology, over political economy, over alliances, so manages to forge more alliances and more partnerships, uh, is going to also set uh, its norms and rules and standards of global uh, global global behavior. And uh, it is chimeric to expect that China will, I mean, if it would be this hegemon one day, uh, would impose uh, democratic uh, rules of the game or uh, there would be a liberal rules-based order one day. Right. So this is a starting point for a discussion where I think at some point, like I said previously, uh, all regional actors will have to decide at some point. We are not there yet, and we observe this from their behavior. Like I said, they are currently oscillating. They are trying to maximize their positions, their gains. They want to engage with the one and with the other. And I mean, uh, not just regional powers in uh, in Asia, with a few exceptions, of course. For instance, India or Japan, they are certainly certainly more decisive in their foreign policy orientation. But if you look at, for instance, uh, European powers, they're still quite, uh, they try to be a loyal security partner of United States, but at the same time, 
uh, good long-term economic and trade partner of China. And this, at some point, is not going to work. Uh, so um, the earlier these regional powers understand and realize that at some point they will have to take a decision, I think, and they are prepared for it, uh, the better. If not, we are going to face a kind of chaotic transitional period with a lot of fluid uh, constellations, a lot of tensions, a lot of volatility in this gray zone, um, geographic zone between the Rimland and the heartland, which is going to face a lot of proxy wars, a lot of direct confrontations and uh, tensions where uh, the systemic powers are trying are going to try to um, interfere indirectly and support the conflict uh, party which suits their national interests and national interests. And this is going to be mostly in large parts uh, of Africa, in the Indo-Pacific region, then of course, uh, Middle East, uh, Central Asia increasingly, and now with Afghanistan, threatening to turn into the next geopolitical quagmire, Eastern Europe, South Caucasus, parts of uh, Latin America. And uh, it's going to be this, like I said, gray zone where, um, where uh, things are going to turn from worse to worst, more or less, during this transitional period. Well, that sounds very. So, it's a to go back to your question, what should the United States <laughs> right, do? Right. I think that, and once again, I would refer to history. Um, when were uh, global powers successful? Uh, during which periods? It was the periods when they were uh, they were investing in infrastructure. They were investing in connectivity. And right now, connectivity is not just transport uh, corridors. It's not just about transport corridors. We are living in a new age. Uh, we are in the middle of a fourth industrial revolution where the outcome is unclear. Each of the both competitors can actually decide it for itself. Uh, there is a competition over artificial intelligence, uh, nanotechnologies, all of these uh, uh, quickly evolving uh, domains. And um, none of these two competitors will make it on their own. So once again, if they manage to, um, to align with third powers in order to actually become a winner of, right. the, of the fourth industrial revolution, and then actually initiate uh, infrastructure investments on their own land, so on their own cell, uh, soil. This, I think, is going to be decisive. This is why we are observing now the trend where, for instance, in Europe, um, these parts of um, Europe, uh, which were part of the uh, former Soviet bloc, are now facing a new initiative called 3Cs Initiative, an initiative that is trying to um, march and connect uh, the north and the east, uh, squeezed by three seas, um, the Baltic uh, Sea, the Adriatic Sea, and the Black Sea, and to build this 
exactly this kind of connectivity and infrastructure, uh, be it in uh, energy, uh, in the energy field or in uh, transport uh, field uh, or digitalization with the help of the United States um, so that um, that there is a, a kind of a new um, new new growth coming uh, coming out of this part of the region. Not just so it's not just about the western part of Europe, but also the eastern part of Europe. And the same applies to United States. So um, I don't want to sound like <laughs> Trump, but it came to my mind that it would probably sound like a, like a Trump uh, motto. But um, the the idea is that uh, United States need their own uh, major and ambitious uh, infrastructure projects for America and for allies. And I think that this is the way how they can actually come out of uh, come out of this um, uh, this cycle. But this is going to happen in a situation in a scenario where there is real decoupling, where there is a possibility for home production, home manufacturing. Because right now the way uh, global economy has been shaped in the last thirty years, this is not going to happen. We are talking about trillions of investment, and uh, in order to uh, to come up with these uh, huge uh, amounts of um, money uh, in a post-COVID-19 uh, scenario, where the socio-economic repercussions of the pandemic are so so great, uh, it's unrealistic to think to think that uh, that it's uh, it's possible to happen in a five to 10 years uh, window. Right, right. I, I wanted to follow up on on some comments you made about the fourth industrial revolution. And one of the things that I, I guess keeps me awake at night is the arms race dynamic that we see between nation states that are vying for the top spot, the, the hegemon spot. And with some of these technologies, I mean, it's, it, obviously nuclear power was was profoundly dangerous, but I, I feel like when it comes to something like recursively self-improving artificial intelligence or nanomachines that might be able to self-replicate, you, you've got, if anything, the potential for even more disaster. Do you think that it's just impossible for nation states to self-regulate because the... Uh, the temptation and the rewards for defecting on that agreement are so great? Or might it be possible to, uh, you know, even in a multipolar world, for the Dragon Bear and the United States to agree to develop artificial intelligence in a way that's very safe? Or, or, or is that just sort of ridiculous? Well, first and foremost, uh, I, I um, don't uh, buy the multipolarity thesis. I want to be perfectly clear about it. The way I see it is that at the top of, uh, of, of, of the global affairs as a system, like I said, is this interconnected uh, global capitalist system. And if we are having a helicopter view on it and we are looking at the top of it, we are having a situation where there is one hegemon, one superpower, one global power <laughs> with global power projections. And then there is this second competitor trying to catch up and, uh, you know, um, engage uh, with uh, the superpower and compete with it. And 
there is a meta level, a kind of mm, level in between, which is where all these regional powers are to be found. Um, where, for instance, Russia uh, is uh, uh, situated, uh, some of the European powers, India, uh, some of the Asian powers, which have a certain limited uh, regional power uh, projection capabilities. So, due to the fact that we are, so this is, in my mind, by no means a multipolarity. This is a kind of a new systemic bipolarity, but it is still in a transitionary period. We, more or less, we can still speak of a unipolar, unipolar global system uh, because um, the moment when one... <laughs> one uh, competitor manages to um, actually catch up. And this is where I named these indicators. We have to carefully observe and uh, analyze um, the political, the sector of political economy, the technological sector, alliances and partnerships, and then global narratives, uh, rules, standards, norms. This is where we can actually identify a situation where it might turn into uh, into um, systemic bipolarity. But multipolarity is to be found only at this regional level where there are all these fluid um, uh, actors constellations, and I named some of them. We have many, many. Just to give you another example with the um, with, uh, rapprochement between Russia and Turkey, for instance, even though that these are two regional competitors that have been waging wars over ages, not just decades, ages and they still managed to have a rapprochement based on the overlapping of certain geopolitical uh, or geoeconomic interests when possible so to clarify this because it is important to clarify it because then i will move to uh, to the field of uh, arms race and um, and new um, new technologies uh, so I think the game is once again the same. That means that uh, we are going to face uh, further waves of arms race and the, techno the technologies will uh, get uh, better and uh, more dangerous in a sense that um, um, many of them, uh, and you named, for instance, artificial intelligence, but also take the example of killer robots, mm -hmm. um, for instance, manned drones right. that are meanwhile not just being used without any international uh, legal obligations, but they also decide wars. For instance, right. the war between Azerbaijan and Armenia last year was decided by using uh, these uh, manned drones that were uh, that that were this decisive component that changed the equilibrium and decided the war in favor of Azerbaijan, and were of course um, supplied to Azerbaijan by a regional ally such as Turkey, for instance, but even Israel. So, uh, and once again, this is another example. Of 
for fluid regional constellation, actors constellation. So um, the, uh, the, the, the idea is that because it's a transitionary period, China has no interest, no interest, zero interest, understandably, in participating in new negotiations on arms, uh, for instance, arms control. So there is this situation right now where um, China and United States both both are applying zero sum understanding when it comes to these uh, issues. Uh, a lot of a lot of uh, uh, a lot of this uh, this um, specifically these uh, kind of weapon systems are still being developed in a secrecy so we don't even have the right. information about all of these systems or where they are deployed and how many even the number this has been uh, recently a, a discussion when it uh, when it was about the intercontinental uh, ballistic missile uh, missiles so uh, on the one side we are having um, a situation where uh, this legal, uh, international legal uh, lever, um, le legal um, frameworks, frameworks yeah. from the Cold War are more or less disappearing. There is still some space for negotiations between United States and uh, Russia. Uh, the example with the New Start. This is the last pillar of the old framework, and even there. There is the effort by Washington to make Russia get the Chinese on the negotiation table, which will never happen under the current circumstances. So on the other side, China is catching up. China is preparing. China wants to be on par with Russia and with the United, with the United States, which is understandable given the uh, great power aspirations that Beijing has. So uh, during this period, I'm not expecting that there will be any any efforts for uh, efforts. Yes, but <laughs> any success in uh, trying to uh, to come up with a new international legal framework for for instance for you know when you use this new uh, weapon system who is allowed to use them at uh, in what kind of uh, situations under what kind of uh, circumstances which makes the international environment even more volatile and makes certain geographic spaces more or less test terrain as we observed during previous periods of, of, uh, of uh, the history of uh, international relations, where certain, uh, for instance, weapons were used and tested, or um, you know, take uh, for instance the Spanish, uh, the Spanish uh, civilian war in 1936, uh, where there was a basically proxy war and uh, and. Uh, um, both sides were trying uh, out uh, new technologies. So this is a very, very, um, very dangerous moment for the international relations on 
the one side, there is the understanding we need to do something, but on the other side, there is zero motivation to do something because of this uh, win-lose uh, right. mentality. The, z the zero-sum nature of the conflict. Yes, yes, um, exactly. So, so I guess as a, as a final question, I'll ask you just what your long-term trend predictions are for the next 10 or 20 years. How, how do you see all this unfolding? Well, I think uh, mostly I outlined um, uh, the most important trends. Um, I would like to stress that uh, uh, what many do not realize is that China has already become uh, the main external factor of uh, American domestic politics. So China is everywhere in uh, U.S. Uh, uh, media, in political discussions, but uh, the United States can uh, actually only, well, they can exert only limited influence on China's domestic affairs. Right. Um, furthermore, international cooperation uh, has become a function of the competition and not vice versa. So if we have competition, um, so if we have cooperation, it's actually only a function of the, the growing competition and growing systemic rivalry between uh, Washington and Beijing, um, which doesn't necessarily has, uh, have to turn into a direct confrontation. So it doesn't have to... Um, I don't necessarily want to point to this kind of drastic and dark future scenario. <laughs> on the on the on the opposite, it can be, like I said, a, a realization on both sides that uh, a direct confrontation will be disastrous for both sides, and that is why they uh, arrange arrange uh, in order to avoid this radical um, a radical scenario they arrange uh, two poles of uh, of uh, global power they manage their networks their partners their minor uh, allies and uh, establish control over technological over technology over political economy within their networks but it's more or less two separated spaces um, or a more pessimistic scenario will mean a more radical more consistent mutual decoupling and we, it's just the beginning uh, where we are at the moment um, contrary to this more peaceful systemic uh, coexistence um, and this mutual decoupling might result in a more confrontational transitionary period where both uh, powers will support uh, proxy wars and uh, clashes, military clashes in uh, the peripheries or in third countries, which suit basically their national uh, interests. I would like finally to stress that uh, it was the USA, which has been the biggest source of China's wealth um, so far, due to the chimerica phenomenon, due to this unprecedented entanglement uh, um, 
which began in the 70s and was initiated by the U.S. leadership. And yet, Washington might also become uh, the source of China's demise in the future. And my expectation and anticipation is that the United States will not shy away from advancing this idea under aggravating circumstances of uh, global power competition. So United States will try everything to prevent China from becoming a second system power. Okay, well, this has been a wide-ranging and fascinating conversation, which is very different from the the normal stuff that we cover, and I really appreciate you taking the time to, to talk with me about it. Thank you very much for having me on your podcast. Absolutely. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.